morning. Hey, if you have a Bible this morning, you can open it or uh, turn on your device and get to 1 Peter chapter 1. We, uh, as a church family, each week have been walking through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we'll pick that back up. But this morning, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll pick up 1 Corinthians again next week. Uh, if you have there, and while you're turning there, let me get us started this way. How many of you, by a show of hands, think that you could give me pretty easily at least 10 differences between men and women? It's fascinating. Very similar to first service. Ladies confidently <laughs> put their hands up. The guys are like, I think, maybe, there's three. All right. I recently came across a picture uh, on some, somebody uh, uh, had somewhere of their Twitter feed. And so this is from someone's Twitter feed of uh, something that illustrates this really well. And here's what it said. It was a lady comparing her and her husband's nightly routine. She said, me, my bedtime routine is this. Remove jewelry, put up hair, wipe off makeup, wash face, moisturize, brush teeth, floss, gargle, contacts and glasses, PJs, pee, start a load of laundry, mouth guard, check calendar, set alarm, plug in phone, worry about something dumb, pass out. My husband, take off clothes, pass out. <laughs> now, I read that and I thought, man, my wife would probably say amen to that, right? Because that is the routine in our home for sure. Now, there are hundreds. We could talk about that. We could probably do the whole time on talking about the differences that there are between men and women. But there are also a lot of similarities. And I think one of the strongest thing that we have in common with one another is a collective fear or uncertainty of the future, particularly when it comes to our death. Many of us are uncertain of thinking about what death is going to be like. Many of us worry about it. We're consumed by it. We've lost sleep over it. We talk about it. We get frustrated thinking about it. Death can consume us when we think about these things. Now, one of the things that I came across recently is a website. Don't check it now. You can check it later. I'm watching you, all right, called The Death Clock. Maybe you've heard of this. You go to this website and you plug in your date of birth, a little bit about your health, a little bit about your life, and it spits out the date that you will die, all right? And it tells you that, so with certainty, you can know. For me, as of last night at 10 p.m., I'm scheduled to die on January the 16th, 2076, at the age of 91 years old. So I'll send out inv invites to my funeral here, um, and you can come to it if you're still around. It's fascinating to me. I don't know if you knew this, Larry Ellison, the founder of Oracle has spent $430 million, $430 million on research that is aimed at slowing down, if not stopping, the aging process. The co-founders of Google have collectively spent $1.5 billion on genetic research aimed at the same thing. They want to slow down or stop the aging process altogether. I love this. Warren Buffett, one of the wealthiest men on the planet, takes a different approach. He drinks four cherry Cokes a day and eats all the chips that he wants to. When asked by Fortune magazine why he does this, he said, well, the lowest death rate is for six-year-olds. So I decided to eat like a six-year-old. It's the safest course of action that I could take. <laughs> one of the things we all have in common, one of the things that we all need in this life, one of the things I think that we all feel pretty evenly in this room right now, especially the last 14 months, is a need for hope. In the midst of all the uncertainty that this world in the last even 14 months has thrown at us, we, we need hope. And I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of hope. I don't know where your, your brain goes. For me, this time of the year, I hear the word hope, and I immediately think of the NCAA tournament, March Madness. That's where my mind goes. 
Yours may go somewhere else. I think of shots like last night, right? Uh, that shot that goes in. I think of a time where uh, I was newer to this city, but felt the collective city hold their breath during this moment right here. If you remember, this was an example of hope. Butler has no timeouts. So they would hope that Zubek makes this. Not going to try. It's Hayward pulling it down, getting around Zubek at midcourt, launches the shot. Oh, and almost ran in. Almost ran in. And Duke it's been 11 years, and uh, people that were in first service have reminded me that it's still too soon, okay? <laughs> and I don't know about you, when it comes to hope, I think about that shot often because I can watch that replay 100 times and hope that the shot's still going to go in. Like, I know it's not going in, but I watch it and I think, Maybe, like it's not going to change history, right? Now, one of the things I've learned the last 14 months, though, one of the questions that's come to my mind, and maybe you feel like this too, is I've watched so much of our world unravel. I've watched so many people walk through pain. As a pastor, I've sat with so many people that are frustrated, disappointed, they're grieving. And one of the things that comes to my mind is I watch the whole world take in what the last 14 months have dished out is this question, where have we placed our hope? Maybe you've seen it too, but I've seen so many people who placed their hope, their hope for the future in a political ideology or a certain candidate. And as things got dicey and uncertain, their hope dwindled. I've watched many other people put all of their hope in an economy and what, whether it was going to do well or not do well and their 401ks and their future and had many conversations around this. And as uncertainty settled in or more certainty, it really determined the level of hope that they had in their future. I've watched many people, how they handled this pandemic, the conversations that they've had, the actions that they've taken. And I've wondered, where's your hope? Like, where's your hope Really? The Bible speaks very clearly to this over and over again, actually. The Bible teaches this principle that where you placed your deepest hope will determine how you live your life. It'll determine that. All kinds of stories. My favorite is actually one that I wrestle with. It comes from Daniel chapter 3 in your Old Testament. It's the story of Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Here's what I want you to do with me, though. We're going to have to do this multiple times this morning. We know how the story ends. So many of you are already like, all right, I can check out for the next three or four minutes and check out the death clock website because I know how this one ends. Wait with me for a minute. Put yourself in the narrative for just a moment. The king of Babylon at the time who had held captive these three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, was a man very arrogant, loved himself more than anything else in the world. So arrogant that he made the decision to build a giant statue of himself made out of gold. Not only did he build this statue and place it prominently where all the people could see it. In addition to that, he issued a decree that all people, when the horn sounded, were to fall on their knees and worship the golden statue that he had made of himself. And if they didn't, if they refused to do so, it would cost them their life. They'd be thrown into a furnace of fire. Well, these three young men were followers of Yahweh, the God of the Bible. So when the decree was issued, they knew good and well, we can't do that. And so this may put a limited time on our lifespan. Sure enough, when the horn sounds and everyone bows down, these three refuse to do so. And as a result, they're taken into captivity, brought before the king, this angry, frustrated man. In fact, the text tells us he gets so frustrated in his dialogue with these three young guys 
that he heats up the furnace seven times hotter than it normally would have been heated up and then determines that he's going to throw them in there. And it gets so hot that the men that open up this furnace are actually burned alive right in front of them. So picture with me what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego might have been feeling in this moment. Humiliated in front of all the people you've been held captive with. Dragged out to be brought in front of a king, the most powerful man on planet earth at the time, whose rage and anger is exclusively pointed at you in that moment, who can think of nothing else than your demise in that very moment. Think of that. Not only that, they can physically feel the heat from the flames that are about to consume their life. And in that moment, it's where my struggle sets in. My struggle is actually other people's rally cry around this passage. We use it oftentimes to jump up and scream and say, yes, it's really in the response that they have to the threat. And I struggle because I think if I were in that situation, if I felt the heat from the flames that were about to kill me, if I had the most powerful person in the world, their anger pointed directly at me and thinking of nothing else but my demise, would I respond the same way? Here's their response. Daniel chapter three, verse 17. They look at him. And they say, Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, if we are thrown into this blazing furnace, the God that we serve is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Here's the line. But even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't save us, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you've set up. You see where my struggle is? Would I be able to look at them and say, with a confident Assurance, a confident trust, a deep and rich and real hope, and be able to say, even if I'm not saved from this moment, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to continue to serve him. Hope. It's a hard thing to hold on to when life gets hard. And these last 14 months have been anything but easy. These last 14 months have shown many of us where our hope was. But for many people, too, it goes a lot further back than 14 months. And don't put a degree on your pain. This frustration, this disappointment, this heartache, this tragedy can be lingering for many, many years where you're just wondering, can I catch a break? Is there any place that I can put my hope that this world can't touch because everything in this world is trying to rip me of any kind of hope that I have? It's to that question that Peter sits down to pen his letter to these churches. Peter's in Rome at the time of this writing. He's writing to a group of churches, not just one church, but a group of churches in an area of the world known as Asia Minor. There would have been multiple churches that received this letter, and the way it would have gone is they would have received the letter and stood up and read this letter to the people in the church, and then it would have been passed along to another church. And the point was to encourage the believers in these churches who were under heavy persecution at the time, a very heavy, hard way of living who felt the heat from the flames that were ready to consume them, who thought, I can't catch a break, who wondered, can I keep going? Is there any hope? Who wondered, am I going to give up all hope? Because this following Jesus has proved to be a lot more difficult than I thought it was going to be. And it's to them that Peter sits down and he writes the words of this letter as an encouragement, as a reminder to tell them that you need a fixed reference point that goes beyond what this world can touch. You need a hope that is stronger than any curse that this world wants to place on your life. That's what you need. And he reminds them that that fixed reference point, that hope, is what we're here to celebrate today. It's the resurrection of Jesus. But how does that play out? Let's look at what Peter writes. First Peter chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 3. We're only going to read a few verses this morning. Here's what he says. 
Peter, writing to these churches who are suffering real difficulty, says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So he starts out with mercy. He says, I want you to know, I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, that in this difficult and hard world, you need to begin with the mercy of God. Well, why mercy? It's because everything good that we receive from God, we don't deserve. Every single one of us is guilty of sinning. Every single one of the Christians who had received this letter is guilty of sin. We have violated what God has called us to do. We are separated from him, which means that anything that God wanted to do was justified. If he wanted to pour out all his wrath on us, it was justified because we'd earned that. But it also means that anything good that God chose to do was an act of mercy. He didn't have to do it. And so he says, the greatest act of mercy that God gave to us was a living hope. Those words, if you underline or highlight in your Bible, I'd recommend you do that. The greatest act of mercy, Peter says, that God bestowed on us in his great mercy was to give us a living hope. My favorite translation of living hope is a profound certainty. That God has given us a profound certainty, a fixed reference point, if you will. I mean, that's what hope is, is it not? Hope's what you look forward to on the other side of pain. It's that thing that you hold on to in the middle of your difficult moments that tells you that it's going to be okay, that you're going to get through this. That's what hope is. And it's the one thing we all have in common is we're all looking for that kind of hope. Whether you are a follower of Jesus today or you have not made that decision to follow Jesus, we're looking for that living hope. And Peter tells us it's in the resurrection. It's in the resurrection of Jesus. It's fascinating to me, though. We don't talk a lot about that. We come to church on Sundays, and sure, and most of the time, we'll talk about it most often on Easter Sunday. I like what Sam Alberry said. Here's what he said about the resurrection. He said, many Christians, while believing in the resurrection and rehearsing that belief every Easter Sunday, then effectively stick it back in the drawer for the rest of the year because they are at a loss to know what to do with it. Like, what is the resurrection going to do for me? How is that my living hope? I was at a conference a few years ago, and one of the main speakers, teachers at this conference uh, up in Chicago made reference to the work of Viktor Frankl. So I did a little bit more research on Frankl and found some more uh, information about him. He was a Jewish-Austrian psychoanalyst who was imprisoned in Auschwitz. Frankl noted how different people responded to the suffering of the death camps, and he wrote about his findings in a book called Man's Search for Meaning. He made a few observations. The first is, he said, the prisoners that responded to their hopelessness, uh, of the hopelessness of the situation, they had no hope at all. They themselves became pretty jaded, much like we do in life when we have no hope in a difficult situation. Bitterness begins to take root and we begin to get calloused and we begin to respond to the callousness, the bitterness. He said many people in the death camps did that. They became cruel themselves and mistreated the fellow prisoners that were around them. Others, Frankel said, they gave up hope altogether. And this was a day they dreaded when they saw it in their friends in the death camp. He writes these words. Usually, the giving up of hope happened quite suddenly. The symptoms of which were familiar to us uh, experienced camp inmates. We knew what we were seeing. We all feared for this moment in our friends. Usually, it began one morning when the prisoners simply refused to get dressed or wash or go to the parade grounds for inspection. 
No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. They just laid there. They'd given up hope. Nothing bothered them anymore because they had no hope. Many of us aren't up against what they were up against, but our pain is still our pain. Our difficulty is still our difficulty, and many of us, when we're faced with hardship and difficulty, we give up hope because we have nothing that can get beyond that circumstance. And that's what that hopelessness can look like. He said another observation is many said that they held out hope, that if they could just stay alive, if I could just fight hard enough, if I could just work hard enough, if I could just endure this, when I get liberated from this difficulty that I'm up against, when I get home, I will be restored to my financial status, to my relationship statuses, my business, my achievements, my good name. All of that will be waiting for me if I just push through this barrier, push through this wall and get to the other side of this, only to find when they were liberated and returned back to what they thought was home. It had been irretrievably taken from them. It wasn't coming back. And from there, he made the observation, many slipped into a deep depression, and most of them ended up taking their own lives. Because the very thing that they had fixed their hope in ultimately was taken. His fourth observation was this. Frankel said that the ones who truly overcame Auschwitz, who truly recovered and were able to endure through this, were the ones who had a fixed reference point beyond this world, something they held onto that was out of the grasp of death and destruction. And his observation was this, life in a concentration camp tears open a soul and exposes its depths and its foundations. Life in a place like that, walking through difficulty and trials and heartache and disappointment and frustration has a way of revealing where we've really placed our hope. It strips it back. And Peter says, that is what this life will do to you. It will reveal where you've placed your hope. Many of us, I know this from conversations I've had, and many of us, including myself, in moments where I feel weak and my hope feels damaged, we place our hope in our circumstances. We'll think things like, man, one day if I just endure, I'm going to get the recognition that I deserve. One day I'm going to have that financial breakthrough. One day people will actually like me. One day I'm going to get married. One day my marriage will get better. And when those things start to look like they're not going to happen, we begin to slip into despair. We give up. We become bitter. But Peter says, in his great mercy, God has given you a living hope. A living hope that leads you to see an inheritance that you have. An inheritance that he describes here as imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. What he means is that we have a fixed reference point that nothing in this world can touch. No amount of difficulty can take from us. No amount of tragedy that we walk through. No matter, how, no matter how much loss each of us has to endure in our lives. This hope, this living hope will not be touched by the curse of sin that we have to endure in this lifetime. He says, that's your inheritance. That's what you fix your mind on. It's the inheritance that one day you're going to be with him forever. And that inheritance is made possible because of the resurrection. That's the living hope you have that was given to you in God's great mercy. And Peter says, I see that inheritance. I hold on to that inheritance. Now think, this is round two. Place yourself, you know how Peter's story ends. But I want you to place yourself in Peter's story just for a moment with me. Think about what the resurrection meant to him. Peter, one who'd followed Jesus for so many years, one who was so devoted to him, one who was so courageous in wanting to defend Jesus. When Jesus on Friday is betrayed, Peter also betrays. Ironically, he stands around a fire 
feeling the heat of the flames and then the heat of the pressure. Do you know him? Do you know him? No, I don't know him. I don't know him. See, that Friday and Saturday were moments of complete and utter despair for Peter. He's so disappointed in himself that when we get back to seeing him again, he's given up all hope and gone back to the family business of fishing. I've got nothing else. I'm just going to go back to what I was doing before. Put yourself in the story. Feel what he would have been feeling in that moment. Don't fast forward. Stay present. That feeling of complete despair, I have nothing left to live for. Everything I'd put my life into has failed me. I've made so many mistakes and I've messed up so much. No one could ever forgive me. There's no hope for me. And then Sunday came. And we see Peter running. Because he hears a glimmer of hope. The tomb's empty. What? And he runs. And he gets to that tomb. And that tomb is empty. Jesus appears to him and his sadness turns to joy. His despair turns to triumph. And he realizes the whole time, in the middle of all the pain, the despair, the lack of hope, God had a plan and he was working that plan. Yeah, Friday and Saturday were painful, but there was a Sunday that was coming that reversed all of the pain for him, all of the difficulty in his story. Peter saw in that moment what we all see right now, that living in Saturday can be pretty painful. We are up against the pressure of this world bearing down on us to give up hope. Every time we turn on the TV or read the next article or scroll through the next news feed, we're reminded of the hopelessness in this world. Nothing left to cling on to. But Sunday's coming. There's a resurrection day coming, one where we're going to be reminded of the hope that has been available to us because of the resurrection of Jesus. Last year, I quoted J.R. Tolkien. I do that quite a bit around here. And I, dis- I quoted his description of the resurrection, where he said the resurrection is when everything sad comes untrue. The resurrection of Jesus is when everything sad comes untrue. This is a great Sunday morning in eternity where all sad things, all pain that we've walked through means we'll be reunited with the people we love and miss so dearly. The sting of their loss sits with us every day, threatening our hope. All the disease we've had to endure, all the physical calamities we've had to walk through, all of it's gone. And he leans over and wipes every tear from our eyes. Here's the other thing that Peter saw in the resurrection. He saw that on the worst day in history, when it seemed as though God was defeated and out of control, was actually the day that God was most in control. The greatest human event in all of history was the crucifixion and resurrection. You cannot separate them. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And with the resurrection, it wasn't just that God won in the end. It's that God used the very thing the enemy thought defeated him to defeat the enemy. And he'll do the same thing in your life. You walk through this life and you feel like you're just beat up. You feel like there's no winning. God will use the very same things that you think are defeating you to show you that he was working the whole time. That he had a plan the entire time. What if you begin to see your life through the lens of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus? What if every day you wake up, it's not just something you close in a drawer and forget about until next Easter, but every day you decide, I'm going to wake up and try to see my life through resurrection type lenses. You'll begin to see that your life, everything, even the hard parts are a part of God's plan. Even the painful parts of your life, God was working toward this end goal of this inheritance that's not touchable. I love the way that Peter describes a third 
part of this. If you look in your Bible, I don't know if this will be on the screen. I forgot to give it to him, but it's, it's down in verse 6. And in verse 6, Peter describes this. He says, in this inheritance, in this promise you have, you can rejoice. But here he kind of twists on it. He puts, though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials. I find that fascinating. You can just read the Bible and miss things like this. But he says, you can rejoice. That's written in the original language in the tense that means you can continue to rejoice. So just know that's what it means. You can continue rejoicing even though you're in the middle of grieving. How does that work? I can rejoice even though I'm grieving what I'm walking through and the pain that I'm enduring right now. It's a fascinating statement. Some of you don't even think it's possible, though. Some of you don't because you can't have joy in the midst of your grieving because your joy is in your circumstances. You have said, in order for me to experience joy, this has to happen. This has to work out. Things need to go this way. And when they don't, it's despair. Others of you, you fake it. You've been following Jesus for a lot of years and you bought into the lie that church and following Jesus is about this, this fake way of living. That when life really hurts, you just got to put a smile on your face and say, God is good all the time. And he's going to put some sunshine on those dark clouds. It's going to be okay. Well, you look at Jesus. Did he do that? On the night he was betrayed, did Jesus say, turn that frown upside down. I got this. I can get through it. No. He wept. Matter of fact, he pleaded with God for any other way except the one that he had to go. He didn't fake it. You don't have to fake it either. I'm tired of that. Look, life hurts. And it's okay to recognize that pain. But if the resurrection is the source of your hope, that pain can only go so deep. Because our ultimate hope is not in our circumstances. It's in the God who brings life back from death who turns tragedy into triumph and takes us through the cross to the resurrection. So experiencing both pain and joy at the same time, it's not about faking it. It's about allowing God to weave truth through the difficulty that you're walking through. Think of it like a thermostat in your house. Think of it like that in the wintertime, right? The cold of your circumstances is surrounding you and it's just so difficult and it's painful and the thermostat in your house, when it, when it feels that cold temperature, what does it do? It kicks on the heat. It begins to warm things up. The same thing's true in your life. Look, the cold pain of what we walk through all the time can be counteracted by the heat of your faith as it continues to grow. If that fixed reference point goes beyond the circumstances that you're facing, if your hope is simply placed in overcoming some obstacle, when you're not able to overcome that obstacle, it will leave you in complete despair. Down in verse 21, Peter sums all this up. He says, through him then you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and hope are in God. What that means is if you've become a Christian and the Bible is clear, the Bible says if I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ, if I have experienced my own death and resurrection in the waters of baptism, if I've been lowered down into a watery grave, allowing my old self to die and been raised up to walk in the newness of life with a new perspective, a new fixed reference, if that becomes my future, then nothing this world throws my way. The death clock can't predict it. A global pandemic can't touch it. Nothing's going to stop me from having hope and being able to rejoice in the middle of difficulty because my fixed reference point, my confident assurance, my hope is in something this world cannot touch. 
It's in Jesus. N.T. Wright, in his book, Surprised by Hope, writes these words. He says, Easter was when hope in person surprised the whole world by coming forward from the future into the present. That future when all sad things come untrue, when all the pain is taken away, when our whole story comes together and makes sense. We live right now knowing that that is our future. Being able to see. Now the Bible says we can't see it clearly yet. We can see it a little bit. But there's coming a day when we're going to see it with great clarity. And here's what I love. Unlike Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Peter, we get to live out our trials knowing the end of the story. We don't have to press pause. We know how this story ends. Let me finish this way. Many of you may not have heard of the name William Dyke. He was born back in 1877 in England, and when he was 10 years old, he experienced an accident where he banged his head and was left completely blind, not able to see at all. But he didn't let this handicap slow him down. He was able to achieve great things, ultimately even going, getting through college and going to graduate school. Well, it was in graduate school that he met a young lady and fell in love, ultimately won her heart, proposed to her, and they were going to get married. She was the daughter of an admiral. And that admiral said, before I give my blessing to this wedding, you, William, have to agree to go under the knife. You have to agree to participate in a very risky surgery that has the small potential of giving you back your sight. If you'll do that, you can have my blessing. Well, he loved her so much, it was no question, I'm doing this. And so he does, he goes under the knife, but he had one condition himself, he said this, my one condition is that we leave the wraps from the surgery on me until my wedding day. Because the first thing, if I'm allowed to see, if I'm gifted with the ability to see, the first thing I want to see is my bride. Well, that day comes, and he's standing up at the front of the church, head all wrapped up, back doors open, his bride comes down the aisle, everyone in the church is completely silent, leaning in, they want to see, did the surgery work, and they want to hear what's he going to say, how's he going to respond she comes down the aisle, and as she's making her way down the aisle with her father, his father standing next to him unwrapping the wrappings. Slowly, they come closer and closer together. They line the bride and groom up in front of one another, and he takes off the last bandage, and the whole church leans in to hear, what's he going to say? And they never forgot the words that he spoke. Wow. You're more beautiful than I even imagined. That's our inheritance. 1 Corinthians 13 says, you see dimly now, but one day, when you step into that inheritance, you will see with great clarity, and we will say, wow. Jesus, you're more beautiful than I even imagined. This is more incredible than I even pictured it could be. We'll be ushered in and invited, the Bible says, to sit at the table at the great banquet of the Lamb. And that table is going to be incredible because we will sit down exhausted from all the trials, unwrapping the bandages that this world has given to us to see clearly. And we'll be surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ, many that we don't know and many that we have missed for so long. And there'll be food and celebrating all around that table. There'll be red velvet cake so rich an angel has to take out its uh, sword to cut it for us. All right, I'm telling you, that's going to be one incredible meal. And we're going to sit around, and he's going to lean in. And he's going to say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Rest. Rest. Be satisfied. There's no more pain. 
No more suffering. No more missing people. No more hurt. No more tragedy. And he'll wipe every tear from our eye. That's our inheritance. That's the hope we hold on to that nothing in this world can touch. And so until that day comes, with great anticipation and with a confident assurance, we hold on to that hope. But the question I have for you is, is that where your hope is? Is that where you've placed your hope? For many of you, you're believers in Christ. You've been following him for a long time. You've been baptized into Christ and you've just gone astray a little bit. And you need these next few moments to realign your heart with the hope that comes from his great mercy that is ensured by the resurrection of Jesus that points us to our inheritance. For others, you've never made that decision. You've been placing your hope in circumstances that continue to let you down and despair and disappointment continue to plague your life. And he's welcomed you in to that inheritance. But accepting that invitation is your decision. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing song and we're going to take communion. I'm going to be in the back of the room. If that's you and you want to talk about what it means to become a Christian today, I would love to talk to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the resurrection. I want to start where Peter started, God. I want to thank you for your great mercy because we don't deserve the goodness that you shower onto our lives. But it's in your great mercy that you've given us a living hope, a profound confidence, a profound hope that no matter what we endure in this life, our inheritance is secured because Jesus overcame it all. Father, we need to be reminded of that every week. We don't need to put that truth in a drawer and wait till next year. We need to sing those songs and be lifted up by our brothers and sisters in Christ and be reminded that no matter what happens in this life, we have a hope that goes beyond what this life can do. May we cling to that today and be reminded of it every day. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,